Welcome everybody, you're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88, right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are, positively different radio, in the morning, you're with the double L team, Lyle and... Lawson! Lawson, what are you thankful for this morning? Ah, uh, I... Bolts? Yeah, actually, I, well... More bolts. More bolts? I, I, dude, I just like, I just live in the shed now, it's just the greatest thing ever. So I had some stuck bolts yesterday. Did you? Yeah, I did. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And did you and get them I out? Sold, absolutely. How? Nine-inch angle grinder. Done. <laughs> yes. Problem solved. <laughs> we went in to win. We won. You won. Dude, you know what? Mile two, bolts zero. That's the only way. That's exactly how we did it. Yes. <laughs> it's just angle grinder, and then you're good to go. That's it. That's amazing. Cut them off. Gone. Uh-huh. What was it for? What sway bar. Who wants a sway bar anyway? They're useless on a four-wheel drive. Totally. Don't want a sway bar on a four-wheel drive. I don't know why they put sway bars on four-wheel drives. So was this on your patrol? No. Or was this someone else? This is on a four-wheel drive that we are putting together for a property where we need it to service on semi-regular occasions, a Faith FM transmitter. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. Four-wheel drive has been donated. Got to do a bit of work to it to get it up to spec. Yeah, one of those things is cutting out the sway bar. Yeah, sway bar didn't want to come (laughs) off. Struggled with the bolt for all of about 30 milliseconds gone. Yep, nah, angle grinder, done. (laughs) Don't need it. (laughs) It's useless. In the bin. Surplus to requirements. It's sitting beside the bin right now because my bin's a little bit full. Ah, okay. Classic. Yes. Well, it's it's going out with the trash. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) <laughs> it is going away. It is not coming back. It can be recycled into something else. Well, dude, as it's my birthday coming up, I got to have the first gathering with my family for the first time in like, what, a couple months? Nice. Locked out nice. and all that stuff. And yeah, we got together and ate dinner and the ate whole family? cake. Um, pretty much everyone except my mum and my little sister because they're in Canberra. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. All right, let's have a look at some positively different news this morning. Okay, so the WWF are reaching out to people, anyone, anyone from their home. They've taken thousands of images from space of the Arctic and the Antarctic, and they've just asked people to... The WWF. Yeah. the What does that stand for? The World Wildlife Foundation or whatever? Oh. Yeah, no, not the World Wrestling Federation. Yeah, I, was, I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking World Wrestling Federation. I'm thinking, what... What are, you know... What good stories going on there? Guys on steroids that are taking photos of Antarctica. It just wasn't wasn't lining up for me. Well... Chore- it, choreographed guys on steroids taking... Well, they've actually... Because they've changed their name to WWE because of the existence of the WWF, like the World Wildlife Foundation. Oh, okay. So to differentiate themselves. Yeah, that's right. So, but the World Wildlife Foundation have taken thousands of images from space, or they've acquired thousands of images of space of the Arctic and Antarctic coastlines, and they're reaching out to volunteers to sit down and count walruses. Is there walruses in Antarctica? No, I don't think so. I, I don't think, think it's so. Just Antarctica. But well, I will volunteer to count all the walruses in Antarctica. <laughs> I will sit down and do that. But not, I, I read this and I thought it was so funny. I was like, because it's just like, okay, guys, do you love animals enough? You will sit at your computer for literally hours. Uh, you know, they've taken 25, like they've taken um, photos to cover 25,000 square kilometers of uh, the Arctic. That's decent. And I'm like, are you going to sit down and count 
all the walruses. You know what I think they should do? Because I think this is a fantastic thing. Like, it's for con- um, conservationists. They want to go through, count yes, all the walruses. Scientific research. You know, it will, it will increase research. our knowledge of the world. Totally. But what they should do is they should make this a game where, like, there's prize money at the end. Like, whoever counts the most walruses, like... They should hide one wally amongst the walruses. This is literally... And if you can find it, you win, like, a million bucks. No, I think... I think Because should... then you'll get people counting. Totally. Well, it just, there should be some kind of prize. Like, surely, because it's like, if you're just going to get people to volunteer, like, yeah, people are going to join. But if you want to get it done quick, then they need to come up with some way to validate, though. So maybe people have to, like, take screenshots and there will be, a, like, a validation group who just... Just, just um, I don't know, hide a, hide a photo of Joe Biden in there, something or other <laughs> like that. <laughs> it's like, oh, dude, it's like, so in the 25,000 photos, like, you just put a bunch of different, like, things in there. Easter eggs, basically. Easter eggs. Easter and eggs. if you can tick all the boxes on the Easter eggs, then you win the prize. Yeah, you could do that. But this is really... We should, we should suggest this. I'm, I'm. We are so smart. But anyway, we are. <laughs> Nonetheless, um, yeah, so that is what is happening in the Arctic. What is happening in the Pacific is that the final test for the Save Our Ocean uh, great garbage patch diminishing technology has gone out. And in their last test before they get, you know, officially deployed in one net scoop, they have lifted up. 9,000 kilos worth of garbage. That's a lot of floating garbage. Yeah, so 9,000 kilos. Because you've got to remember, this is floating, so this is stuff that is lighter than water. Yeah, that's right. 9,000 kilos worth. And, like, because they're looking at the Great Garbage Patch, which is, like, something ridiculous. It's like is it the size of Texas or something? It's like rather? an area around 600,000 square miles. Yeah. That's massive. Mm-hmm. And that's what they have to tackle. But yeah, the final test that they've done, they've raked, they've raked in nine thousand kilograms in one net. I wonder how much. I wonder how much surface area they covered doing that. Honestly, the net is not that big. Oh, and in terms of surface area, it'd probably be tiny as well. Like, there's so much floating wow. out there. But like, because the net isn't that big, but that is still a massive amount. And now they're at the like place where they've, dude, if they've like prototyped this, they know it works. Now, you know, they've got their backers on board and everything like that. They can just start going super hard, build the boats, build the nets, get out there, you know, deploy a fleet of, you know, starts with 10, 20, 50, and just have them all trawling around and picking up garbage and coming back. Sounds like a great idea. So really awesome stuff. Hey, dude, I read this story this morning that made me laugh so hard. So basically in a bunch of cities in the United States, they're testing self-driving cars and they have like paid testers who sit in the cars and, you know, they, they they deploy maybe like 20 or 30 in a city so that they can see how they interact with each other as well. Um, and their main goal is with self-driving cars is to get people obviously to their destination and get around the city. But at the same time, like there's features built into where they'll see like, oh, you know, if a road's really congested, they'll go down a different road instead, you know, to decongest the city. They're basically trying to, you know, two birds with one stone, solve congestion. Well, we'll also decongest the city because... Uh, it means that when the light turns green, all cars start moving simultaneously rather than you having to wait five minutes until you, you, you at the back of the line start to move. Yeah, that's which right. Is, which is much more efficient. To- Dude, totally. So all these cars are interacting with each other and everything they're getting around, and specifically in San Francisco where they're doing tests, and they have, um, they have around 30 cars in San Francisco. There's this one cul-de-sac that 
all the cars keep driving down because the city's congested and getting stuck. <laughs> like, yes, like, I like at, at about like a rate of there's a lady who lives on that street who's been um talking to the local like you know news reporters and she's like it's around 50 of these cars a day that well, might be an exaggeration no literally well it might be a slight exaggeration but because like they're test they're out testing all day like yes. this fleet and they're going from one side of the town to the other collecting data on how you yes. know the roads work and whenever and, they get congested, which is kind of all the time in San Francisco, yeah, they take an alternative route. And then they're like, oh, let's... And there's a mistake on the route. Yeah, there's a mistake on the route. It's this <laughs> cul-de-sac. And so it's just all hours of the day, all hours of the night, these cars have just been driving down these cul-de-sacs. And it's to the point, because it's so frequent that multiple <laughs> of them get into a line, so so much for efficiency. <laughs> they're all in a massive line in this cul-de-sac, and then they all do a synchronised U-turn and <laughs> yes, drive out. The I need to see some YouTube footage of this. But, dude, oh, it's so awesome. But, hey, Waymo is still, um, you know, getting it done and they're hoping for release in around 2023. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, so in Oklahoma, and we were having a discussion as to why Oklahoma exists. We, um... Yeah, we did some research. Yeah, it's like, what, what, what is in Oklahoma? Apparently a bunch of uh, mining and industry. So a little bit yeah. like Newcastle, where mm. we broadcast from. But anyway, in Oklahoma, a woman has just been sentenced to four years in prison uh, for first-degree manslaughter for killing her child. Uh, I, ooh, okay, so nice. Yeah, yeah a, bit, a bit heavy stuff. Mm. Um, the interesting thing about this case is that the child was... 15 weeks old, as in 15 weeks from conception. Wait. Not birth. So this was in the... This was a 15-week-old fetus. Okay. So you've got a 15-week-old fetus here, and, and the tragedy is that this uh, the, the fetus died from... She, she killed her, her baby from uh, using uh, meth, methamphetamines, mm. and uh, poisoned the child, and so uh, miscarried and lost the baby as a result of that. And um, the autopsy has revealed that the baby died from meth poisoning. Mm. Um, and so she has been imprisoned for four years for first-degree manslaughter for doing so. I find this most interesting because how can you have a prison sentence for manslaughter when a person hasn't died? Mm. Because so many people say that a fetus is not a person. At 15 weeks, it's not a person, and so you can abort it just, you know, however, whenever you want without even, with, with no conscience, without even thinking about it, with not even having to give uh, an incredibly valid reason. So how can you have a manslaughter charge brought against somebody and upheld in the courts when, according to the law, it's not even a person? mm uh, according to law in many states in Australia and the United States, it's not a person until, well, after it's actually naturally born. That's when it becomes a person because mm. you can abort it up until birth. We even have post-birth abortions, both here in Australia in some states and overseas. How does that actually work? 
Mm. Now, when I'm listening to this story and looking at the implications of it, you know, the, the thought goes through my mind is like, okay, is this, this something exceptionally rare? So I did a bit of research on it. And in the last 15 years or so, there have been 1,250 cases in the United States where women have been imprisoned for killing their unborn children. Mm. Either purposefully or accidentally, such as this one, um, which is a, a manslaughter case. It's interesting. I'm actually just uh, just doing some research as you're speaking about Oklahoma specifically yes. and the laws there. And recently, like they tried to put through. Apparently, the governor of Oklahoma is incredibly pro-life. Like yes, um, yes, very much so. And he's tried to put through uh, past bills and laws, but they've actually been blocked yes. from being put through, um, like anti-abortion bills. So, like abortion within Oklahoma is legal. And it seems as though, to me, just hearing this story, it's like, oh, um, it's only okay if you pay someone slash the government to do it for you. Right. But if you do it yourself... So if you hire an assassin, that's okay. But if you do it yourself, then then that's not okay. it's illegal and you're prosecuted. And I think at that point, it's like, okay, who does this, who does this directly affect? And it's like, when, when I hear a story of this woman, like she is not in a good place in life. No, no, she's in a terrible place. She's in an awful place. And it's like, okay, so who does this law affect? Well, well, who does it affect? People who can't afford it. Like poor people, like low socioeconomic people. Like who does it, who does, and and I mean, law isn't specifically like, who is, who is um, like, because at the same time, like, you know, I'll, lay my cards on the table like I don't, I don't agree with abortion like I'm, mm. I'm i'm also like i would consider myself pro-life and i feel like this situation is is a terribly awful one and and maybe you know there should be uh consequences and repercussions for people you know uh, doing enough drugs to kill their unborn children like that's not okay but it, it like where where is this where are we going to put the standard if like if abortion is going to be locked away behind a paywall um, and if, you know, people in low socioeconomic – like, she's she's going to go to jail, like, for four, four years. years. Four like, years. that's a long time mm-hmm. for effectively the same net outcome of someone who is rich and can afford it. Because then there's something to be said about, oh, well, like, I know that this woman probably didn't do meth on purpose to kill the baby, but is she really in a position to have the baby? And if she was in a higher socioeconomic class, would she have the ability to legally get rid of it and move on with her life and not be There's a lot of really persecuted? interesting implications with this story. So I'm I'm just like, I... I really hope this woman's I mean, okay. <laughs> like, I hope she's okay too. And, and I just want to say this, that, you know, Lawson and I, we do come on air and we do say some strong things about abortion from time mm. to time. And uh, we understand that there are a lot of you who are listeners who have had abortions for a whole multitude of different reasons. Yeah, that's right. And we know that that is, you know, some of the things that we say are probably hard to hear. Mm. And, you know, if you're feeling bad about this, at, you know, uh, at this particular time, just want to remind you all that the Lifeline number is 131114. Mm. Um, give those guys a call. Happy to talk to you at any time about any subject. Um, so that's really important. But uh, it's interesting implications that you, mm. you raise here. Now, we're assuming that she's low socioeconomic because most meth addicts are. Yeah. Not all. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some, you know, there are some you know, children of multi-millionaires and so forth. That, but uh, I'd imagine if, like, the people... Yeah, we'd probably know about it and they'd probably have a better lawyer so they probably wouldn't be going to jail. That's right. And that gap, you know, 
has kind of always existed. That's why we have a legal system, not a not a uh, a justice system. Mm. Yikes! That's mm. that's tough. That's tough. It is. Anyway, moving on here. Uh, whoa. Did you hear about the weather in Queensland? No, what happened in Queensland? They had hailstones. I, I don't care about. Oh, they had hailstones. Yes, we had hailstones like two times in the last month. Try hailstones. Try big hailstones, like big hailstones. Oh, like how big? Okay, take a guess. Um, as big as a pebble, or a, no bigger. Keep going. Like as big as like a a bullet from a gun. Keep going. Like as big as a like a big rock. Well, that how big, how big is a rock? Like a golf Try ball? This. Try this. 160 millimetres across hailstones. Yikes. That's Six massive. 6.3 inches hailstones. Were they like. This is an Australian record for hailstones. Like literally kill every car and smash every roof. Pretty much. And kill every person. Pretty much. Um, there was the one guy on the news report who was describing he pulled over in his car and when the hailstorm started, pulled over on the side of the road and, you know, took a video as his rear window was just being completely smashed in. And moments after that, of course, his front window was completely smashed in and the dash of his car was just being pummeled and breaking off plastic pieces off of his dash. Wow, insurance is going to have a fun time. Oh, they're going to have a fun time with this one. 160 millimetres across, reaching a terminal velocity, the uh, Bureau of Meteorology says, of around 100 kilometres an hour. This is a a day after they had a tornado up there. So this is, what, four tornadoes now in in three weeks? dude. That's that's like it's not quite biblical proportions. Biblical proportions is watermelon size, but it's getting closer, dude. This is pretty hectic signs of the times that we're having right here. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. All right, so on the line we have David Hapt. Are you there with us, David? Good morning, Lawson. Yes, I am, and good morning to your listeners. Yes, that's right. Okay, David, what are we going to be talking about today? I believe this is a continuation of what we were discussing last week. Correct. And one of our listeners, uh, Lawson, came back after you know last week's presentation, and he actually wrote the following: "He said, isn't shame a and guilt? Uh, isn't shame a guilt from God, so we can mm. go to Him to cover our shame?" Uh, we have all sinned. We all have done something we are ashamed of. Uh, it gives us opportunity to go to God for help. Uh, what our listener has just happened with him or, him or her is that they've just fallen into the trap which I spoke about last week, namely that we so often use the word guilt and shame interchangeably as if it is speaking about the same thing. Let me make clear what the difference is, Lawson. Mm. Shame is intensely a painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. On the other side, guilt is a sense of remorse and a desire to make amends. Which one do you reckon is from God? Shame or guilt? Probably the one that sounds a lot better for me. So I'd imagine guilt, right? <laughs> Correct. In other words, God uses 
and, and part of the working of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin and mm-hmm. therefore lead us back to God. God is never the person that breaks our character down yes. to the point where we feel that we hold no worth and value. Let me give you some further difference between shame and guilt. Shame um, is character-based. I'm a bad person. While guilt is action-based, I did a bad thing. Mm. Now, let me share a, a story with permission from the individual, I'm running a depression anxiety recovery program and there's a fairly elderly lady in our audience that when we did the assessment, she didn't complete the assessment. So I bring her in to the counseling room and um, I said to her, I understand that you've not finished your assessment. Maybe it's my youthfulness in the speed with which I ask the questions or maybe it's my accent. So I thought, I'll bring her one-on-one and we quickly go through. Is that okay? She agreed. And I said, I've noticed that you've done up to question number eight. So let's go to question number nine. Uh, Question number nine is, have you ever been forced through sexual abuse? To which, Lawson, it was as if you had pricked a blown-up balloon. She just burst into a flurry of emotions and tears and uncontrollable uh, wailing. I allowed her to just you know, grieve for a bit and then gently just touched her arm. Uh, she looked up at me through her tears and I said to her, you've never shared this with anyone before. Is that, is that correct? She nodded her head. Now, she hasn't said anything yet, but her actions told me what has happened in her life. And uh, I said, would you mind sharing with me what happened? Which she then shared how at the age of seven, she was sexually abused by a relative. Now she's living in deep in her 80s, in depression, with anxiety, with two broken marriages, in complete isolation, unable to move forward, still held back by the events that happened when she was a mere seven years of age. Mm. This lady is held back by shame, not by guilt. But Mm. guess what? She believes that she is at fault. She believes, she carries the distorted belief that if she carried worth and value, that that family member would have valued her and not abused her. That is very typical of shame. But so often, a pseudo guilt comes in. In other words, a guilt that is not imposed by the Holy Spirit that leads us to to restoration. Another difference between shame and guilt is that um, shame leads you to want to shrink and hide and disappear. Mm. While guilt identify a wrong action that we've done, that you regret, and prompts you to change for the better, for the future. Yes. Yeah, there's... So I, Oh, I, I, I was just going to say, there's a couple of things I identify, particularly in that in that testimony. It seems as though guilt, you know, whilst guilt um, is often 
you know, uh, a, a, an emotion that arises in us because we are uh, perpetrators. It seems as though shame, yes, can arise in perpetrators, but um, it sounds like from this story also goes after the victim, uh, the person who has been abused, who has been hurt. It seems like guilt is is attacking the psyche of of that person um, in, in a way that is incredibly debilitating rather than transformative. Correct. Correct. And in in the years of therapy that I've been doing, I have there's been a holy anger that rises within me because I so often see people very early in their life being mistreated and abused and taken advantage of, and they are the ones that keeps on drinking antidepressants and antipsychotic mm. medication carrying that belief system that this event took place because there was something inherently wrong with them. Mm. And and it so holds them back from, as I said last week, to move forward and reach the potential with which God has designed them for. And therefore, it is so important that we understand how to break the impact of of shame. And that is what I really would love to focus on today, just very briefly, just a few steps on how to do I was lecturing at the university uh, as as a guest presenter and uh, speaking on this topic. And I made the statement that so often we stand in front of the mirror and we're told to stand in front of the mirror and to look at the person looking back at us in that mirror and say, hey, good morning, handsome. Ain't the world a great place to have you around? <laughs> wow. But, but tonight, as I lay alone on that bed, in the coldness of darkness, I know that all of that is fake. Yeah, wow. I know, Lawson, I know only of one way to break the hold of shame. And that is to be in the presence of someone who knows everything of my past, but still holds me in full regard. Mm. Now, I'm not sure whether you can uh, identify that person. There's only one person that knows everything of my past. And no matter how the searching lights of the community is zooming in on my past, being held by him in full regard actually transforms my life. And that is, the person is Jesus Christ. Yes. Now, it is the, the Christian psychiatrist, um, what is his name now? Let me just, um, Bradshaw. He writes the following, he says, now he himself grew up with major shame in his life. He says that the only way out of the pain was to come out of hiding. I had to surrender. I had to embrace my shame, my pain. Embrace my pain led me to expose my pain, my sorrow, my loneliness, and my shame. This is what I had feared doing for so long. In other words, the first point out of shame is to come to that point where I actually acknowledge that I'm held back by shame. Mm. 
I was just going to say, it's almost counterintuitive, right? Like, in a, in a sense, we can feel so much of an urgency to, to just bury it and try and forget about it and move on because, like, you can think that, oh, even the, you know, if, if I do admit it, that that process itself will hold me back. But it seems as though that's really the only way, and especially in the presence of, the, of God, someone who actually understands and knows and can help. You know, John chapter 8 tells us the story of a woman that was caught in the very act of adultery. Mm. She carries with her the shame, not just of her act, the sin that she's committed, but, and, and the guilt of that, but she carries more. And as, as we read extra-biblical writing on the life of this individual, we see that she actually might have been a person that had been sexually abused as a young child, and therefore were trafficking in into this kind of lifestyle. So carrying mm. with her that narrative of shame, and what we see in the presence of Jesus as she's thrown at his feet, him knowing everything of the past, says, neither do I condemn you. Wow. Go and sin no more. Mm. But there's there's some wording there that and we don't have the time for, where we see that Jesus saw no one other than the woman in John chapter 8. Did, did he enter the church, or was this a focus of intimacy, of, of solely focusing on, he, on, on her alone? In other words, elevating her importance in his presence. I believe it's the latter. Mm. The second point, so sorry, Lawson, you wanted to say something. I was, I was actually just going to say, okay, if it's so clear then that God is the one to go to because he understands, like, um, it, it, and I think you're just about to answer this question, how is it that we approach him with this? Like, how do we bear our shame to God? to ask him for an intimate relationship with him. Mm. In other words, after we have actually acknowledged it and we act against our, our shame, in other words, what I so often say to, to clients is to, to recognize that internal self-talk that is happening in the recesses of our mind and, and then hear what it says Catch the shame phrase. Remember that it is the the God that heals and forgives that actually speaks life. It is Satan that speaks death and condemnation. Mm. And asking yourself, the internal voice that I'm hearing, is it speaking life or death, will help us to determine who is really the author in, in that, that voice that so clearly speaks that holds me, me back. But then surrender and ask God for an intimate relationship with him. It's interesting, John, the woman, John chapter 8, so many theologians say that most probably that is Mary Magdalene, uh, that, that was eventually confronted by the love of Jesus Christ and transformed her life. As the strong men, Jesus' disciples, fishermen, said, we will never leave nor forsake you, even if we've got to die with you. They all fled as Jesus was arrested and nailed to a cross. But there was one woman that could not be moved from under that cross. Who was she? Yes. A woman? Mm-hmm. Once fully exposed in a shame, but held in full regard by someone who know, knew everything of the past, Jesus Christ. 
no matter how that Roman soldiers pressed in around that cross, she just would not move. Mm. Wow. So it seems as though like when someone bears themselves and they have that relationship, it, it is possibly the best and most transforming thing for them. Correct. And it is a discovery when we really come to that point where we hear God speaking into our life, his love, God never will break down our character. Mm. He will point out our sin because sin separates us from him. And as we respond to the, the, the guilt that the Holy Spirit brings and we confess it, and we enter in a close relationship with him, we see that not only has he forgiven our sins of our past, but he also is willing to set us free from the shame that shackles us back to our past. Mm. David Haupt, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about the difference between shame and guilt and how we can overcome it. Right. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.